Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Um, great to have you all here again. And uh, today we have a really special guest, uh, a returning guest. Uh, was on the show about a year ago, and now she has a book coming out, which I'm really excited about, and is on a subject that I'm really interested in. Um, so welcome back to the show, Dr. Hilary McBride, PhD. <laughs> it's so good to be with you. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm so delighted. Yeah, no, it's exciting. It's, it's great. I, I really enjoyed our our conversation last time. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like we were only kind of getting started that time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh my gosh. Well, in this stuff, there's just, we can go as deep as people go and people are um, kind of limitless in terms of their depth and capacity. So there's uncharted territory still left to explore. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely there is. And if you don't know Hilary's work, um, she is, um, well, she's an author. She used to be part of the Liturgists podcast as well. She's been a guest on a lot of other podcasts as well as her day job um, as a therapist, right? So um <laughs> so she's busy and also her new job as a mum so yes <laughs> <laughs> so um uh yeah <laughs> um but so yeah she's um she's fantastic i would highly recommend you follow her work if you, if you don't already um we're going to find out more about that today so um yeah you've got this new book um i do the wisdom of your body, um, mm-hmm. which I love. It's kind of there's that other book called "The Body Keeps the Score." This is kind of like mm-hmm. a gentler, right, version of that <laughs> right. kind of thing, right? Less, um, yeah. mi- less mind bending version of that because that's got a lot of um, a lot of science in it, a lot of technical stuff in it. This one's a bit. This book's mm-hmm. a bit more accessible, I think. Right? Yeah. But I think you're hitting on something really important, like that. That's a, we use it in some ways, even as a text, as a, as cl- trauma clinicians, as academics, as people who are working as practitioners in the area of trauma. So it is. It's a really technical manual in a way as well mm. about the science of trauma and how it's stored in the body. But as you're kind of alluding to, one of the things that I think um, the book is not meant to capture, it is not about this, so it is not a failure of the author or the book itself, no, it's a great book, but it actually. kind of represents a kind of a, um, a really pa- like pathological perspective of the body as this trauma bin, really, that the way that the body is as the book presents it, uh, kind of exclusively holding our trauma and telling the truth about our traumas, which is such an important addition to our common understanding of what's going on. Why do we react the way that we react? What's going like what's at play in how we show up in the world and why it feels so painful to be us. But what I'm trying to do with my book is say that we are, we are bodies and as bodies, yes, trauma is stored, in our muscles, in our tissues, in our kind of unconscious processes, working themselves out in our nervous system, but also our bodies hold wisdom. Our bodies hold insight and intuition and connection and a map 
of how to be human. Our bodies hold really important keys for us individually and collectively for our healing and our flourishing. Absolutely. Yeah, they do. And I've been doing a lot of embodiment work in the last couple of years. It kind of coincided with um, the pandemic starting, ironically enough. Mm. Um, I did some work with a with a great embodiment coach. Um, you all know her, um, Jamie, Jamie Lee Finch, um, who's been a guest mm-hmm. on the show. So I did a lot of work with her for quite a few months and, um, yeah, it kind of changed my life really and changed my perspective on on my yeah. body and, you know, starting to name my body as a person and see my mm. body as a person, <laughs> to have a relationship with him um, mm-hmm. and listen to him. And then doing internal family systems therapy, which is kind of talking mm-hmm. to your own brain. Exactly. Um, and yeah. actually literally personalizing it. Like, like um, I had a session last night and I'm starting to, all these internal managers that become healthy, I'm giving them personalities. So they're all like, they're all becoming MCU characters, <laughs> you know? Like, yes. um, <laughs> like um, my protection manager is Steve Rogers. My um, confidence manager is um, Tony Stark, for example, you know, um, and there's others as well. But it's, um, but it helps you get to know your body. And also then those managers start doing their job without you needing to tell them what to do. Um, right, exactly. Well, I think you're you're alluding to something that stretches across a variety of therapeutic interventions and healing approaches, which is can we turn towards the stuff that previously was alien to us or running the show without us knowing or we hated mm-hmm. or hurting us? Can we turn towards it? Can we believe that there's a self inside that has the capacity to look at these parts of our life or parts of ourself and can get curious about them and then build a relationship with them. In a way, what we're doing is we're building community inside of us. We're creating these internal maps of belonging so that no matter where we go, we're held. No matter where we go, we can bring for ourselves Mm. love and kindness, attention and care. And ideally what that you know, some people are afraid if we turn towards our body, if we turn towards our parts, if we turn towards something inside of ourselves, in a way, are we further fragmenting ourselves out? Are we creating more schisms or splits inside? And, and really the kind of, the way to think about that is to reorganize the line of thinking and say, we're actually fragmented already. We're fragmented already in some ways because of a broken world that we live in or because of the way that social structures have wounded us that create these schisms and splits. We're not adding to the splits. We're just bringing tenderness and love into the relationships we hold inside. But also it's actually been a, a really kind of well articulated argument from various feminist, womanist scholars and indigenous scholars that, the theory of a unified self internally doesn't actually hold up when you start looking at different ways of knowing, different ways of being, different ways of experiencing internal reality, that it's probably more likely that we are a choir inside than we are a single voice. Mm. And so how do we get the choir to sing harmoniously? How do we be in relationship with what is in a loving way instead of everything inside being at odds with itself, kind of the cacophony mm-hmm. of fragmentation. Yeah, I'm, I'm just getting this image of 
of, of like our core selves being a conductor and all these parts of us being the choir. Yes, you know, exactly. And we are trying to just get everyone doing their job properly so that yeah. they're all in harmony with each other. And that is, um, yeah, that's a, I love that. I love that whole metaphor. Mm. That's brilliant. Thank you. Well, it's <laughs> it's not really mine. When we think about the you know, feminist developmental psychology literature talking about the multiplicity of the self or what we might call like polyvocality is something that I became familiar with in terms of um, Carol Gilligan's work, who's a psychologist out on the East Coast in the States and recognizing that we have all these different ways of being inside and that who we're around elicits a certain kind of response. It's like, oh, this is the time for the soprano you know, vocalist to sing because she knows it's time to play her part with my mom. And here's the time for the bass note to be sung by the, you know, the bass vocalist. It's, it's really makes sense of why we can be so many different ways with so many people. And I think if we take this down to a kind of granular level, we think of voice in terms of the, the auditory narrative that we explain, but voice is also our, our expression of us in the world. So there is an element of voice to being a body. There's an element of, of expression to how our body shows up in certain spaces. And so while many of us are still used to thinking about ourselves in terms of a mind, maybe we think of the voices inside as existing in our mind. And we forget that our body also has a voice, that our body is telling a story and there is polyvocality to our body as well, which is why in some situations our bodies shrink and we get small. There's something inside that makes us feel afraid, like we need to be protected. And then in another situation, we laugh and play and jump and run and our body is saying, this context allows me to show up in this way. So it's not just our thought life that has complexity to it, also our bodies, right? And this is one of the ways that we can start to see how the division between mind and body really has to break down the schism that we've been created to, or we've learned to believe exists. When we start to experiment internally, we see that probably those voices in our head match up with how our body is showing up in the world or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. begin to see in a very experiential way, the complexity of the self as a mind body relationship is evident in parts work as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's all it's connected, and that's that's mm. that's certain, certainly been my experience. The more I've done therapy, and the more I've done right. embodiment work, is right. that all of these things are connected. That that that, yes. that these these responses. So, for me, one trauma response I have is overeating comfort eating mm. emotional eating so if something goes really well or something goes really badly or things are really bad i can mm. just fall into that that habit um and right. and that is not just my physical body my 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 mind is part of that mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a there's a manager or an exile or or something that is involved that is wounded that is that that response is that response started at a certain point in time and has been just doing that ever since because that's all it knows and mm-hmm. 
one of the things that I learned, and I think you you'll probably have a lot to say on this, is a lot of these responses, well, all of them, it's not the body trying to destroy you. It's it's the body trying yes. to protect you, right? So absolutely. So all these kind of bad habits that I've had to deal with, all these negative responses or even childish responses. Mm-hmm. They're not, even though they look, even though they have a negative impact on me now, when they were first formed, they were formed to protect me. They were formed to take care of me, to to stop me being hurt. It was the intentions were not to cause harm. Mm -hmm. The opposite. It's just that you need to explain to these parts that hey, I'm not 15 anymore. We don't need to do this anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah. what, What are your kind of thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you said that because it's such an important thing for us to to learn in order to not perpetuate more harm to ourselves because we have these mysterious reactions in our body and we don't understand them. And so we learn to be afraid of them. And then we add more pain to the existing pain, which we know does not make it go away. It just further compounds the need to cope and minimize and dissociate and defend. So being able to see in a loving way that the things that are happening in our bodies are actually our body's desire to survive, to care, to to, um, go on to protect allows us to to automatically, I think, access a compassionate and grateful perspective for these responses. Oh, you were just trying to care for me in a way that does two things. One, it stops that cycle of adding more pain to more pain to more pain by doing something different. But then second, and I think this is, it's a little technical, but hang in there with me. It, it proves to our body that the trauma is over. Because usually what happens is the trauma is an injury that is further compounded by disbelief and misattunement and isolation and further harm. And so our body, when a trauma is happening, never actually gets to close the loop and go, oh, I'm safe now. We actually need something on the other side of the trauma to say it's over. But when we're disbelieved or we silence ourselves or something shuts down, it's almost like that loop of responding to trauma stays open and doesn't close. And then, of course, we get more things added to it. So being able to say, kind of turn compassionately towards the response is, in effect, the very thing that our body was longing for all along to know that the trauma was over. So we actually can kind of get healing on a few different levels there. And this, like, um, for those of you who are interested in reading more about this, I talk about this in my book in specifically related to chronic pain and pain issues and something that... um, in the Buddhist tradition, they call the two arrows, the second arrow. The idea is that life shoots the first arrow. Something happens, it pierces us, it's painful, we're wounded by no fault of our own. And then what do we do with that? We have a choice. And many of us have been taught to turn towards the first arrow with another arrow. We, we wound ourselves further. Look at you, so stupid, you shouldn't have done that. This happened, how could you? You should, you know, it's your fault. So there's an arrow that we can't control, but instead of reaching and pulling that arrow out and putting some balm on it, we just start slinging more arrows. And that is the piece that we have choice about. And that's the piece that you and I are talking about here right now. Like, how do we respond? Do we add more arrows or do we pull the first arrow out and go, oh, sweetheart, that must have been awful. 
No wonder you did that. Thank you for protecting me. How loving of you. Right? Yeah. Which is the bomb that we need the first arrow in the first place. Mm, I love that metaphor. That's a, mm. Yeah. And I mean, so much of that comes, so much of the damage comes that it's not just the first wound, it's that second wound almost that because we live in a lot of people a lot of us have come from a culture which where shame is prevalent right so anything anything wrong is your fault and any bad habits are your fault any bad you know Mm. we're kind of kind of you want to say toxic evangelicalism teaches people to think anything like that is your fault and you're failing and there's something wrong with you um and that's one of the reasons we need to be free of that culture because, mm-hmm. and that's why i think that's one of the reasons i think you talk about disembodiment in the book that that people can get so disembodied it's like you you almost like your body is bad and mm-hmm. that your body does that are that are bad are bad or you know bad habits compulsive habits are mm-hmm. bad or you are a bad person for having those habits and right and well, that just gets into really are... negative cycles doesn't it Exactly. Like, I just want to be really clear. Many of us have been explicitly told you cannot trust your body. Your body is dangerous. It will lead you astray. It will hurt people. It is sinful. It needs to go away. It is the barrier to being connected with God. (laughs) It is the barrier to true life. Like we have not just been told these things implicitly in insidious ways. We have been explicitly told that our ability to be good depends on our ability to be disconnected from our sinful sinful nature, which is bodily, which is the flesh. And I argue, like for people who are kind of interested in that line of thinking, I make an argument in my book that that's actually a misinterpretation of what some of those original ideas were meant to be, what they were, how they were meant to be interpreted. But the it doesn't matter in a way. The damage is done that people who have claimed to have authority and speak on behalf of the divine have taken things that they didn't fully understand and didn't think critically about them and used them to be weaponized to make us ideally suppress our bodies mm-hmm. at the, you know, kind of at the, to the detriment of entire generations and communities of people over you know, centuries, these ideas of our bodies being bad and them needing to go away. These are thousands of years old, these ideas. And they come, you know, there's, there are points in history when we can look back and say, well, people hadn't really thought of that before. It's a kind of novel when you think of the the trajectory of human history for us to think this way. And yet, and yet it's so commonplace and so part of the water we swim in that many of us don't really realize that there could be another way. It's just been so important for us to survive either these contexts or our trauma or whatever to dis- disconnect from our body. That thinking of connection and embodiment, wow, that, I mean, for some people, it's it's not even relevant. It's so far outside of the scope of what's normal for them to think about their body as being the place of their personhood that it actually seems kind of absurd. But it's so helpful to remember that this is a kind of new idea, that it wasn't always this way. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's scary when you think about it, how yeah. how this this kind of 
idea perpetuated itself that, that right. you should disconnect from your body that you should not listen to your body that mm. it's it, it's like it's almost it's like I, i've talked about a lot in lots of different places it's like build a structure around your pain so that you don't have to feel it mm. like around yeah. your grief so that you hide from it mm-hmm. and then everything will look great everything will feel great you you'll think you don't have any any pain it'll all just disappear right when actually it doesn't disappear mm. when you do that it just gets worse it just, okay. it just allows it to That's thrive right. and get more control of you um and You're so right and so when you and i was talking to somebody about this today that like deconstruction which is a word that is often used is like you're 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 tearing down a structure that's built on sand Mm -hmm. and this this it's like and this is covering over all these wounds all this grief all this trauma all this stuff your body's been trying to tell you and when it falls down Mm -hmm. then you just have that stuff right there and that was my experience when i when i let go of organized religion when i let go of um, trying to have a career when I lost when I when I let, almost lost my 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 house all the thing all the things that were covering up my pain were gone. Mm. Wow! That I was that was my rock bottom moment, my kind of suicide ideation yeah. moment. It was the, that, but it wasn't just the despair of all of that. It was all the grief and trauma that I all that I carried for mm-hmm. like thir- nearly forty years. Just wow. like finally, I was feeling You're it, waiting yeah. and that was that was almost like a beginning. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of healing and transformation mm-hmm. and growth and liberation and awakening, right? And but you have, but and that's why people don't want to go to that place because you could, because you could come to that place of like despair of like, wow, there's all this stuff in me that I didn't know was there, right? Yeah, but that yeah. is actually what we need to so do, and that's why you need therapists. Right. That's why you need professional support. That's right, why I was going to say that's why you need community. That's why you need friendship. That's why you need people around you. You know, all of those things to help you on that journey, which I didn't have at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, so yeah, it's scary in itself, but it's even scarier when we're alone because we're meant to be connected. Yeah, but there's, I'm so glad you talked about that. There are moments after it feels like everything has broken down. Because for so many of us who have been in those moments, it feels like this is how it will feel forever. This is, this is the end of the story. And I, I'll never feel anything on the other side of this. And yet there is something there for the taking. I mean, I had a, I had a supervisor um, so in clinical work as psychologists and therapists, I'm sure social workers and other, other helping professions have this similar principle because so many of us work in isolation. We take our work to somebody else and say, Hey, can you help me with this? I'm stuck with this. Or, Hey, can you watch this piece of clinical tape? And can you tell me, you know, where I could have done things differently? And I was stuck. I was struggling in some clinical work a while ago with a, a patient of mine who was extraordinarily depressed and just really, really inhibited in everything that was going on for them. And I remember thinking, feeling like I kind of took on some of this hopelessness and despair for this person. Like, oh, they're really stuck. Maybe they really, really are stuck. And I remember my supervisor saying, as stuck as they are, they are that determined and powerful to say, I will not go on with things in my life 
the way that they have been. Like the the resistance or what could be seen as the stuckness or the immobilization was actually this determination inside saying, I refuse to participate in a life that does not allow me to thrive. I refuse to participate in a life in which I am treated in a way that diminishes me or whatever it is where my pain is not valued. And so even that flip of seeing like, Wow, even in these moments of breaking down, even in these moments where it feels like all we have left is our pain, there is something there waiting for us. It's waiting for the taking to say, if I can, if I can be with what is most true about me or what is most needed in this situation, there is in a way more hope than there's ever been. But sometimes we can't see that when we're in it. We, can, we were just stuck in the complexity and the tangles of our defenses being dropped or feeling like we're totally trapped in this depressive episode. And someone else can say, I can see that everything can be made new from this point. I can see that for the first time you can actually face your pain because you're not hiding from it. I can see that even though it looks like you're stuck, what you're saying more clearly than ever is that you refuse to participate in a life that harms you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why anyone who does this work with themselves, I'm always uh, I'm always in awe of their courage because it takes it's not easy to do to do that work. Um, mm. um and you have to want to do it and it has to be it has to be organic, I think. It has to be it can't be like forced upon you because that kind of defeats the object right. of it. Um, and, but you know, and I, I mean, I've, I've, my mental health has taken a big hit the last couple of years because of the pandemic, but mm. I have moments where in the midst of that, I can see that I'm growing and I can see how much I have grown and I can see, and I'm grateful for, I'm grateful that I got to that point and I grew from that point and, Mm. all the work I did since then and all the choices that I made. And I don't, I don't regret any of them. Um, mm. And I guess that's what well, I'm saying that I'm saying that really for people who are listening, who are maybe at a different point and yeah. questioning whether to, to go there or not, you know, I'm, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's not an easy journey, but I am grateful for it. And I'm grateful for who I'm becoming or who I'm discovering. Mm. Wow. Oh, I love that. I love that language to becoming, discovering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm. So tell us a bit more about kind of this bit. Where did, where did it all kind of come from? What was the, what was kind of the, the energy behind the book? What was, what was it you really mm. wanting to, to say? Yeah. Well, I think there's the, really the theme of the book is, is you are a body and your body is good. So you're good, right? But I am trying to slowly dismantle some of the ideas that we have been passed along that you are not your body and you are not good and your body is not good, which are kind of the, again, the fabric within upon which so much of our, um, the fabric that's woven into, if I stick with the same metaphor, the social structures that are oppressive and dismantling, um, dismantling them 
is part of how we become free individually and collectively. And a body, our bodies are central to that. My argument around that has us look at how most of the isms that we see in our cultures have to do with which bodies are considered good or not good. And we can we can see the bodies as a central bodies are a central measure of how we are controlled and how we are taught to believe um, who has power over us. So in in really starting to pull apart some of those lies, there is more space for us to say, hey, there's another way of living here. And that that would mean, you know, explicitly using the language that I do in the book, that we become more embodied. And to be embodied is not to perform being a body some other way. You know, it's you know, many of us have come out of faith context where we were told, do this with your body. I'm not here to be another person to say, no, 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 that was wrong, but I'll tell you what the right way is. There's some something in kind of the embodiment community where sometimes we can perform embodiment. We're like, oh, if I'm embodied, I do I do this with my body because that's what I saw someone else do. Um, but instead, thinking about embodiment as just the experience of being a body, expanding our field of awareness about what it means to be a self, to include bodily sensation and knowing and understanding how the context that we're in, the social context, the political context, that shapes how we're able to experience our bodies. If we experience our bodies as good or safe or connected or lonely or other. And while I'm wanting to present the flawed nature of our disembodied culture and promote embodiment with some ideas about how to do that, I want to say two things. One, we become disembodied for a very good reason. And you, you alluded to this, right? We build these structures around our pain or we have to shut things off because something is man, it needs to be managed inside. Or we were told if we didn't shut that off, we would be in danger. So being disembodied, although unhelpful for us, ultimately usually has served a purpose at some point. And so we don't need to further shame ourselves for that. And then I think the other piece that I try to get into in the book is many of us don't really connect with our bodies. And then something happens that shocks us into awareness that we have a body, that we need to pay attention to our body. Maybe it's pain or illness or body image or aging or an oppressive experience of an experience of marginalization or being othered for our body or, you know, trauma, right? There could be so many different things. And so what kind of happens is our body gets scapegoated, right? We don't connect and then we're forced to connect. And it's around a point of pain that is often misunderstood by us and and not supported well culturally. And so we go, ah, here's the proof. You know, this is proof that my body is bad. I feel pain. I should feel nothing. And then I feel pain. And here's the, here's the reason that my body is untrustworthy. It fails me. I can't do things that I want to do because of this pain. And what I'm suggesting is that our bodies in these specific points of outrage, the sensations that get so loud that we cannot ignore, that that is not proof that our bodies themselves are broken, but is proof that our bodies are calling us into a new new kind of relationship with the world around us, that our bodies are saying, I, I can't do this anymore, or pay attention to me, or like something is unfinished from that trauma, or you need to rest, or this system is hurting you. It doesn't feel good. So instead of scapegoating our bodies, what we need to do is seeing our bodies as telling the truth about systems that are harmful. And in doing so, 
not only can we heal individually, but then we have the capacity because we are embodied and resourced to go out into the world and change those systems. That's amazing. I love that. I love that so much. Thank yeah, you. That's, um, because it ties our bodies into the world that we live in and everything about it. Like, and mm. yeah, and embodiment work is about that. It's about being aware of what the systems that we live in are doing to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's one thing I've really become aware of is like, wow, the system expects my body to work 40 hours a week uh-huh. and sitting in front of a computer and yeah. dealing with a lot of difficult stuff that I have to deal with, like right. sensitive information, um, and and then just go to sleep and mm. come back and <laughs> do that again. It's like we're, we're, we're almost like machines in a system in a, in a system right we're all and that's not how we should be i talked to a guy who wrote a book called laziness does not exist um and and uh, yeah about how we and one of the parts of the part of that book is about how we shouldn't be working that many hours in a week our body shouldn't be doing that that's not even how we're most productive. We're not designed yeah, to do exactly. that, right? We we actually get more right. more productivity if we work less hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think there's actually countries where they work four day weeks and they get more done. Mm, um, I believe it. Um, and they don't work like ten hour days all day. Like they work. Right. Exactly. It's not, <laughs> it's like, not like a collapse. It's not like we compress <laughs> all the hours into four days. It's, uh-huh. But they actually get more done. And of course, mm. they're happier because they have more days off. They're able to rest more. It's like oh, the sure. System. They're not treated like machines, and we live in a system which treats our bodies yeah. like machines. That's and great. Something has to fundamentally change that because our bodies are not machines. They're mm-hmm. you know they're finite, and they need rest, and they need yeah. care, and they need love. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's just when you talk about it, I feel so connected to the like the frustration and the the obvious absurdity of it that we, I mean, Foucault talks about how the fastest way to control a person is to control their body. We live in systems that control our bodies and then our bodies protest and our bodies break down and our bodies are saying, I cannot do this anymore. But instead of saying, wow, the systems needs to change. So many of us have said, what's wrong with me? As if there's something defective about us when really what's happening is we're telling the truth, but we haven't learned to listen to those messages. Our bodies have to scream before we hear them, right? Because we're so disconnected. And then at that point, I mean, usually we're feeling so depleted that we don't have the trust in ourselves to turn towards our bodies and, and respond lovingly. There is just, there are multiple levels of this coping and fragmentation and defenses and these like you talked about protectors and managers layers on layers on layers on layers so even if we do stop and slow down and listen it doesn't feel good right away there's so much that exactly like you said has not been heard and then when we finally make space for it all the things that were unfinished all the things that were unfelt come to the surface and that can feel like a lot but instead of attacking and criticizing and blaming ourselves what we need to ask is what is my body telling the truth about maybe it's something 
like the conditions that I'm living in that are just not meant to be this way. They're not conducive to thriving. Mm. Yeah. And again, that's listening to you, to your body, isn't it? It's really, really paying attention. You know, why is my body like this? Why? And I noticed this more now if I'm not sleeping. Yeah. And I'm like, why am I not sleeping? What is it? There's something's going on. It's not that mm-hmm. it's not that I find something wrong and then go back to oh I haven't been sleeping. That's probably why. It's more I'm not sleeping. So what's what's yes. what's happening in my in my body to make that happen? You know? Yeah. Um, oh, I love that thinking about you asking that question that takes it just a layer deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds so loving and requires I can imagine practice and patience and trust and like some sort of fundamental belief that you'll get an answer and it's worth waiting for it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's good to hear, hear that. It's encouraging. <laughs> yeah. Is it? <laughs> yeah. No, it is for yeah. me. Like, I, um, yeah, it is. <laughs> well, it sounds so um, obvious to me listening to you and this is kind of my therapist hat kind of speaking out, out here, but you've done so much work to learn to even recognize that there are parts of you inside of you and that they're worth going towards and being named and having identities. Like this is the kind of, this is the kind of thing that I would wish for all of us is that, I mean, hopefully it doesn't hurt so much for us to have to learn to do that. Hopefully we can learn from the beginning, but to be gentle and loving and curious and patient, I can imagine that if we knew how to do that with ourselves, we could do that with each other and we could build more peaceful worlds. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. That's what gives me the moments I have hope is when I think about that. I mm. I was thinking I've been I have moments of hope when I think, well, we're going through a collective grief trauma experience right now. So isn't this an opportunity if we all come out of this and all do the work and all yes. start listening to our bodies and start and start yes. doing healing. Um, then we could actually change the systems that we live in, and mm-hmm. the world might end up changing. And I think, yeah, because a l- so many, so many of the things that have happened, especially in the last few years, like especially politically, you know, in both of our countries, um, mm-hmm. is because I, I, it's because people have a lot of unresolved trauma and grief and it's all stored up and they don't feel heard and then somebody comes along and tells them they'll make it great again you know and they'll restore their pride or whatever or nationalism and stuff like that and that plays to all those those unheard voices probably from childhood right of course and of course course that whips up all this and, and and you get all these things these things happening which have yeah. happened, which are all, all this anger, which is just mm. unresolved pain. And mm. we've got to learn that lesson, not to store up our pain, but actually deal mm. with it. Because when we do, that's when we can get transformation. And not just individually, yeah. but collectively. You know, mm. And I have wow. to hold on to that hope, because if I don't, then I won't yeah. have anything to hope, on, to hope for. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean... There's something 
just that is really, I feel very a present to, as you're saying that, which is, it becomes so much harder to hate other people when we see their kind of dysfunctional behavior, harmful behavior, personas as a function of coping with their trauma. Because it's something my husband and I talk about all the time. He'll say like, you really ruined being judgmental for me because I used to be able to say like, what's wrong with that person, <laughs> right? You know, like someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, that's a jerk, you know, that's a jerk. And and when you start thinking about it, like what is going on for people? There's something underneath this. And maybe, maybe they don't even know that people don't behave this way and then unless they were hurt and they weren't taken care of. And it, I don't necessarily mean to say that by being compassionate, we need to be permissive or um, accepting of harmful behavior, but it becomes so much easier to be collaborative and understanding and again, not shoot a second arrow for ourselves or someone else when we go, oh, that's the pain talking. And it's hard yeah. to remember. Like I think about the times when something bumps up against my childhood wounds and I feel small and scared and I take it on and I believe that somebody's reaction is actually about me and I feel invisible and shame and all that stuff comes up. When I'm in my present day adult self, I can go, oh, people don't treat people that way if they're not hurt. Yeah. It just changes the way that we can be in relationships mm. and just kind of out in the world. So mm. see, I'm thinking about the significance of seeing people's responses to the pandemic that way too. Yeah, that's right. And I've, yeah. And that, that's something that I've noticed too. It's, mm. it's like, and I've got angry at times with these about it. And that anger has always been tempered by, but you know what? The reason these people are, so is one of the reasons people are so resistant to all these things is because they are scared to face the reality of what we're dealing with. They don't want mm. to acknowledge that it's happening. Mm. Almost they want they want to kind of pretend it's not happening, or that it's not as bad as everyone says, or that it's not affecting them. Well, they don't want to deal with how it's affecting them, right? And and again, they may not even be aware of this <laughs> and it doesn't excuse and it does not excuse harmful behavior at all mm. um harmful behavior is never there's no excuse for harmful behavior but it just helps you understand that oh this is why this is happening mm -hmm. because they're just not dealing with this stuff and right. i guess i get i think the frustration i feel is just sometimes when i see this and it's obvious to me but it's not obvious mm. to them and you can't explain it to them because they can't yeah, they have to discover right. it for themselves, right? Because somebody That's can't right. be told this. You have mm -hmm. to. It has to be your own journey. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's so well articulated. I mean, you've obviously put a lot of thought into this, and it feels lovely hearing kind of hearing resonance. These are the kinds of things that I I want I want to know, and I want to live, and. There is um, something that feels inspiring about being able to share with you a similar way of looking at the world. And I feel hopeful that people who are listening could join us in viewing themselves and other people in this way. And that we can simply by sharing in the conversation in this way, invite more people to be kinder to themselves and other people to have more of a trauma 
informed understanding of challenging problematic behavior and and in doing so that we shoot fewer second arrows at others and ourselves. And I still struggle with it. I mean, I have a poor, I definitely have a poor body image. I don't like looking at myself Mm. in the mirror still. I'm still working Mm. that out. Um, I know I need to change my diet to stop myself having a heart attack and getting diabetes and things. And I I know I need to change that. And Mm. I'm still working on that, but, but I'm, I'm working on it. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not just static. I'm working on it in therapy. I'm talking, you know, I'm talking to people about it. I'm, I'm reflecting on it. So it's not, even though it's a problem now, it might not be in the future. So it's, Mm. yeah, I just hope that people hope again. Yeah, yeah, and I haven't felt hopeful much recently, mm. but um, I feel hopeful today. Talking oh, to I'm you. so pleased. Oh, I feel hopeful talking to you too. There's something about the sharing of the possibility and sharing. Maybe it's just sharing, or maybe it's thinking about the world, the world that can be created when we are more loving and compassionate to ourselves and each other. It feels like, oh, that's not so far away, and that's also not so hard. Here we are, we're kind of doing it with each other. Yeah, bearing witness to it with each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, this is great. I love talking to you. We, I, love, <laughs> I love talking to you too. We, we should do more. <laughs> we should do more episodes together. It'd be, uh, be, be brilliant. I'd love to do that. Um, mm-hmm. um, so people can get this book anywhere that books are sold. I think it's out now. It's true. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the there's a there's a couple different co- covers too. So for people who are interested, I don't know what it'll be like for you out in the UK, but uh, there's a Canadian cover and a US cover, so you can take your pick. Yeah, we've got a blue cover here. Yeah, blue, oh, yeah, because you have the US one. Yeah. Um. So yeah, but yeah, highly recommend it. Everyone, get hold of that and check out Hillary's work, and she's on you on social media as well. Yeah, um, that's right. On Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride. On Twitter, Hillary L. McBride. And my website's HillaryLMcBride.com. Fantastic. Um, so everyone check check out Hillary's work. Um, I highly recommend it. So um, thank, you. thank you again for coming on the show, Hillary. It's, um, oh, it's, it's such a, a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for it, having me. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. <laughs> no, no, I was just, I was just saying it's, it's a privilege to have you on here and, mm. and to talk to you and listen to you. So... Thank Thank you. you. My pleasure. And thanks for listening, everybody.